Hello and welcome to The Week at Work. My name is Michelle Byrne and I'm here with my co-host Claire O'Connor and with Left Block member Glenn Fitzpatrick. And as always, we'll be having a look at the weekend papers and stories of the week from a left perspective. Um, the Week at Work is a part of Left Block, a political education and media project. And you can find out more about us um, on our patreon.com slash leftblock or on our socials. Um, so today, I guess the, the biggest news of the week, it's dominated the headlines and analysis and discussions um, and it's still ongoing. Um throughout the weekend as we kind of face into you know the talks of protests and stuff next week and this week this weekend um on the um eviction ban being lifted um and we're only a couple of days away from that actually becoming a reality um claire what have you been reading on this I mean, I suppose this is dominant the past couple of weeks. It, it has been the biggest talking point. And I think it's, on one hand, it has showed the, the kind of, you know, neoliberal cruelty within the government. People are seeing that, that even in, despite us being in such a crisis that we've been in for so long. And also the measures that they're saying they've implemented to support people haven't been implemented yet. A lot of people just can't understand why they would lift it. So even people maybe who hadn't been engaged before, who hadn't, you know, who had kind of made excuses, who were sympathetic to landlords, I think that the level of anger has kind of reached them as well. I think the farce that played out in the Dáil during the week with the, you know, the kind of wooing of the, the independent group, the back and forth constantly about who was going to vote with them, who was going to vote against them. To be honest, a huge amount of the media coverage has actually revolved around as well the Green Party stuff. You know, was Nessa going to vote with them? Wasn't she going to vote with them? Was Patrick Costello going to vote with them? Wasn't she? And it, it's just a real distraction. It is a real distraction. It almost becomes a bit of a soap opera because... It's a pantomime. Like, it's a pantomime. It is yeah. a pantomime. And, but again, it's, and it's just a distraction. Because to get into the actual nuts and bolts of it, like what we need is journalists who are actually examining the measures the government are saying they're bringing in. So, for instance, like from the start, one of the measures has been the, the tenants and situ scheme, expanding the tenants and situ scheme. And up until the day of the debate in the, the doll, I think, um, like there was county councils around the country who hadn't had any contact from the government. They had absolutely no idea. They heard like I know people who are contacting county councils and city councils saying, you know, my situation wasn't covered previously. Is it going to be covered by this extension of the Tenants and Situ Act? And they were basically saying, we don't know. We haven't had communication. So then you had um, Mary Fitzpatrick on the, I don't know if anybody saw Mary Fitzpatrick and Rory Heron on the Tonight Show during the week, where she was so desperate, she basically then tried to throw kind of Rory running for PVP 17 years ago, Adam, as mate. She called them, you and your socialist party. Like, it was it was just awful. Again, any attempt to distract from the actual conversation. But she said they had brought a lot of them in, the city and the county managers in that day. And that's the kind of, you know, that's the level that we're at. That's the level of uh, the lack of forward planning and forward thinking that we have. Even if some of the measures do have any kind of impact, they haven't been implemented. They won't be implemented by the time the, the eviction ban is lifted. And we're going to have this absolute wave of misery. And when we're not seeing an examination and investigation of those policies. You know, we're not seeing journalists go into detail and say, right, what's actually implemented? When's it going to be implemented? What can somebody do if they, you know, if they're evicted in a week's time? Like, where mm. can they go? And that's what we need our journalists to be doing. Not yeah. playing, you know, not a kind of pantomime between Nessa, Horrigan, Patrick, Costello and Eamon Ryan, which is so much easier for people to engage in. It is. It's, it's really, because I think what that whole situation has shown so a lot of people as well is is that integrity isn't a part of politics you know what i mean like it's just not what politics is about is power control and consensus they will do anything they can 
to get the number of votes they can to pass what they want. And that's all it comes down to. So when you're yeah. voting for somebody, if you are voting for somebody who's willing to go into a government with one of the neoliberal parties. like You're willing to concede on important things yeah, then. Yeah, you're, you're acknowledging it, that you're going to be aligning your vote alongside parties that you supposedly don't agree with. You know, that that's just that's going to happen from that, isn't it? Um, but yeah, there's there's a question of, you know, that the, this whole thing of, you know, Nessa voting or voting against the party uh, mul- multiple times. And like, you know, is uh, how does that keep going? You know, out of why, why are you still in the party? Like most people have already abandoned ship who can't stand over the policies yet. You know, she's still there. So there's a question around that. But going back to what you're saying around like the actual policies themselves, like so in the business posts this morning, there's actually a poll um, on the eviction ban. Um, so very timely, obviously, of course, uh, a few days before it's about list and it's talking about how vote- voters are deeply divided um, over the end of the eviction ban. And I was just reading on, on we love digging into a bit of a poll here um, when we see one, but like some of the figures are right. So it's a Red Sea poll and it's talking about, you know, do you agree with the, well, it actually doesn't publish the question, but essentially it says the majority of voters um, are opposed to ending the ban. So this is saying that 46% of people actually support that eviction should continue um, as normal. Um, so, and then one in three voters say that, you know, they uh, they shouldn't be ending the ban, right? So I was like, oh, that's very interesting. I wonder how many, what's the percentage of uh, renters to home ownership in this country? And magically enough, it almost aligns. Um, so I was looking up the CSO data this morning and like so you're, you're looking at like one in three voters so 36 percent of people say uh s- say that they that, like they support um and ending the oh sorry I'm, i think i'm reading this wrong so for yeah so sorry the majority of voters um are opposed to ending the ban but that that's actually a huge amount of homeowners are actually included in that because there's only 20 30 percent of people in this country um are renters so when you think about that there is a huge like amount of people who aren't directly affected by this in a way where they're facing eviction that also support this. So, you know, t- taking into account, um, you know, the class interests there, like obviously all the lands- landlords are voting to, uh, in-, in these polls as well, are voting to say that, yeah, no, obviously we're- we don't want evictions to happen because our direct interests are impacted. But ideologically, people beyond the people who are directly affected from eviction are, it looks like, are also saying that they support um you know, the protection of other people, which is nice uh, for a change. Um, but I guess like there obviously then it was also another question asked in the poll and it was asking about the proposed tax breaks for landlords. Um, and there's much more support for that. Um, but obviously a lot of that support is in Fianna Gael voters, shockingly enough. Um, so you're seeing that whole, uh, that, that uh, mapping of uh, Fianna Gael voters um, also the Fianna Gael bounce as well there's an increase in the, the support for Fianna Gael off the back of this as well so obviously um, their position on this is being supported by landlords it's they're, it's been reflected in their voting it's actually Fianna Fáil and the Greens who are being impacted in the polls um, by this vote but it just shows like obviously the tax breaks plan is supported by the majority of Fianna Gael voters it is the landlord party again and again we talk about this um, but also by independence so we talk about the role of the independents in the government and how they prop up like Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil and ev- pretty much every vote and whether you want to say the regional the rural the rurals didn't vote this time but the regionals are essentially an extension of Fianna Gael a lot of them are ex-Fianna Gaelers anyway um, but yeah you can see that uh, true and true but obviously the Fianna Gael supporters are the keenest too but Interesting enough, because we talked about labour, we were talking about labour um, before, um, 
almost half of the supporters um, of the Labour Party back the decision to end the ban as well. But that means that the opposition to ending the ban is uh, is fairly high in the Labour Party as well. So I find, find that interesting too. But yeah, there is obviously a class divide there when it comes to like lower income voters supporting um, to keep the ban in place. Um, and obviously wealthier people with their interests in place are not supporting it. Just one thing quickly on that, though, if you if we had a removed landlords, if landlords had had to step back from that vote because they obviously financially benefit. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of discussion around when politicians, you know, in an ideal world should ha- declare a conflict of interest or step back from a vote. But this is one where they very clearly, you know, financially benefit. If they had to step back, the vote wouldn't have passed. I mean, the, ev- the, the eviction ban would have stayed in place. And also one thing I think that feeds into polls is the language. So. There's people out there who don't understand that this isn't an outright eviction ban. It's a moratorium on no-fault evictions. So, like, if you're paying your rent, that's where this stands. Like, people, because you'll see a lot of people in comment sections, well, if you're not paying your rent, and people don't understand that actually that doesn't even fall in under this. If people aren't paying their rent, they can be evicted. All these little things give landlords a reason to still evict even under these circumstances. They can still find a way. So, and I think sometimes that's not communicated. So people then fall back on those kind of arguments in support of ending the eviction ban too. Yeah. Glenn, and it's, 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 uh, yeah. Uh, I'll look at the, it's hard to disagree with, with most of what you've outlined there. Um, just the, on the poll, um, I wonder, like, is there any kind of uh, penny dropping in Fianna Fáil or Green Circles? Like, seeing Fianna Fáil's support rise as a result. I mean, Varadkar's now back in the driving seat. Um, and it's, you know, will, how, how are we going to see this trend where things that are happening in government are purely to Fianna Gael's benefit? Um, because Fianna Gael are able to box clever like that. Uh, I mean, even back to when the government formed, you know, Fianna Fáil taking on housing and health, Fianna Gael decided, like, yeah, let them at it, you know? Um, and, you know, ultimately now, like, Fianna Gael, are, are they going to be able to continue to cleverly use their coalition partners as proxies for just setting themselves up for that next election? And then, you know, they kind of consolidate that inverted commas uh, centre-right space in the parliament, you know? Um I think it's you know don't 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 underestimate Fianna Gael's potential to play cleverly there. Um, so yeah, I mean that was that was really all I had to say on the poll. But just on the media treatment of the eviction ban in general, really, um, you know, now obviously I, I don't know many landlords. Maybe I need to broaden my circle of friends. Um, I rarely meet them. They tend not to organise marches. Like you only really hear from them in the media. Um, and I suppose it's just it's really interesting to think about like like the best way that like mainstream media can engage an audience is to, you know, show them a conflict where you've got, oh yeah, everyone's really divided on this. This is really polarized. Um, but when you talk to people in, on a day-to-day basis, like because there's not that much public sympathy out there for for landlords who maybe are inconvenienced by a tax regime they think is too rigorous. Um, most people tend to side with the vulnerable family on the verge of having to knock on a guard station, you know. Um but those two, th- those two sides, like one of those sides, has to be elevated by by mainstream media in order to create this perception of a conflict. Um, and just like and balance, last, yeah. I mean, over the last number of weeks, like I mean, drive time, for example, you will hear the the the, the, the mother of, of four who's on the verge of eviction, followed up by the the representative from the you know the IPOA or or one of these these bodies. Uh, and then like, and I know Sarah McInerney has a lot of a lot of admirers in sort of left or progressive centre-left circles. Um, I think it's, you know, I, I listened to her and she'll read out six, you know, pro-landlord texts to one. Uh, so, like, this idea that that there is huge public sympathy for landlords, even among, you know, left-leaning voters, like, that has to be constructed. Um, 
So I just think that the media treatment of this, the media benefits from this idea that there is, you know, two polarized sides in terms of being for or against the eviction ban. Um, but I think when you take a lot of that away, like a lot of that has been a, con a construct of mainstream media as well and doesn't really reflect the reality of how people on the ground see this. Um, so that's just to say that. And then, I mean, like the treatment, like the, the whole way through, like, you know, like the, the things that stick, you know, it's like, you know, forced to sell and the victimized landlord. And in reality, we should have a symbiotic relationship between tenants and landlords rather than actually, you know, in reality, there's completely com uh, competing interests there. Um, and then the things that stick, uh, the last one I would just say is like, you know, opposition parties being, you know, uh, tired with this idea that they're objecting to homes. Um, but what they're actually objecting to is luxury built to rent uh, entities in their constituency that are going to be beyond the affordability of uh, most most people in that area. And, you know, you need like, you know, two months deposit to get in anyway. And, and most of the taxation for those things are going off to Canadian pension funds. Uh, but it basically, kind of, the underlying thing is the only thing we're allowed to talk about is supply. Supply is the only issue, not the type of supply, not ownership, not tax, not land, just supply. So, I mean, I think, you know, we have to look at media complicity and all of this as well. Yeah, um, and I think that flows very nicely into um, a story that Kira Kelly um, did uh, on Saturday, um, uh, talking about how the media create that kind of... Uh, conflict that you talk about Glenn um the headline of Kira Kelly's piece is are you hoping for class warfare where the squeeze middle is expected to give away its right to hold property and just sets this whole tone of like at one point in the article she says that the far left are essentially as bad as the far right and how come they're not um being you know uh called out in the same way and uh, like I just the absolute leaps you have to do to to make that comparison like god forbid like people on the left call for homes for all healthcare for all services for all as if that's supposed to just like as I just like she it goes on to say a societal threat now how a societal threat is for everyone to have a safe and secure life is yeah. beyond my level like I just can't even jump the hoops to try and make it to where she's uh coming from with that but it's that whole argument of like oh they're, they're one of the same and like oh, like where's what about the squeeze middle and our properties that are going to be taken off us and I was like you're not the squeeze middle right if you have properties point. if you have properties that like do you know what I mean you're not that's not the squeeze middle do you know what I mean like is language to suit a different narrative and creating this whole other thing that's just not a reality but she's talking about the danger of the far right and then that's a far right talking point. Like the idea that your home will be taken off you. Like you're, you you can't, you won't have the right to own property. Like that's something that the far right are pushing in opposition to the to the potential referendum on, on a right to home. Like it's, and the thing is that most people that aren't engaged in this stuff day to day won't hear that, won't hear those dog whistles when she's actually saying them. I thought one quote on that was out outrageous though she says I know ordinary people who have a rental property they've left vacant rather than renting it because they fear there's a bias against landlords like she's basically saying that in, uh, in uh, housing prices where families are on the streets and potentially being sent to, to guard stations to sleep because there is no emergency accommodation she's defending people leaving properties empty like because there's some kind of mistrust against landlords or there's judgment to that and it just shows the complete ideological difference there I think like if you go back to during the week there was a story came out and it goes back to how this the distraction now in fairness the journalist covered it it was in the papers but it was about how a, a housing development I think it was in the west 
you know, I think seven people had went sale agreed on it. And then all of a sudden the developer came back and said that they had sold the whole development to like an investor, like one buyer, basically, who was going to rent them all out. And I mean, that that should have been spoken about in the doll, because we had when this happened down in Mead and Kildare last year and the year before, every time it happened, they stood up in the doll and they said, this is a, this is an out, uh, outrage. We're not going to let this happen again. But they never introduced policy on the back of it. So this is the kind of now I, what I think is really interesting is that actually when the likes of Mary Fitzpatrick are on the Tonight Show and they're coming out saying, you know, where the, the local county council can buy your property, they've actually moved into that language of state ownership and the state being a landlord in a way that they've been forced into that place because they they refuse to extend the eviction ban. So they've been forced to go to a place that we've been asking them to go to for a long time, which is to buy up those properties. But I think... um. If the the opinion columnists, I mean, we've seen it with um, another article during the week that the level of privilege, the level of disconnection from the real world, basically putting, putting forward the argument that it's the best time to be alive. You know, and, and maybe for this woman, it is the best time to be alive because she's clearly very privileged. She has all the, you know, step ups in the world. She's not even living in the country. She's writing from London, I think it is. And, uh, you know, she to talk about how because people have access to cheap holidays and talking about how because people have access to smartphones that that makes it the best time to be alive in the world. The fact that even mentioning cheap holidays doesn't acknowledge the fact that for some people in the world, that's actually caused millions and millions of deaths and the destruction of the natural environment. You know, it's like it's such a disconnection. And I think the, the paper is being complicit, like Glenn said, a massive part of that is the opinion columnists, the vast majority of, of opinion columnists in the paper, right lean and, <laughs> and very conservative. And I think that they have so much more of an influence because there's not the same journalistic standards applied to them that there even is to actual journalists in the newspapers. Yeah, and it kind of shows you who has access to the media as well and who has access to decision makers like media and TDs. Like we've seen this before, not not everyone can have access to a column uh, like being a columnist or a columnist even um, or can't, you know, have access to, you know, the ministers um, the same way that developers and the same way that landlords do. So, and it goes back to what Glenn was saying earlier about like, um, you know, this idea of conflict and uh, balance in the media and how that's even created in the first place because they're not on the streets. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, like, so Kira Kelly is the referee, like the neutral centrist in between two extremes, rather than being the reactionary right wing ring troll that she is for a living five days a week, you know? Uh, and there's plenty of them across across the broadsheets, unfortunately, today. But it's 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 hilarious. We just suspend, suspend disbelief and pretend that she's some moderate that you know doesn't get doesn't get ultimately paid to to just kind of you know stir the pot. Yeah, absolutely. And it was interesting just on that housing piece as well, like because obviously the Labour conference is happening um, this weekend. Um, and um, I, I know some, there's a, probably a couple of stories on it. But the one that I was reading in the the Business Post is talking about um, how. Um, Ivana Bacic, the Labour Party leader, says that we need to provide one million homes in the next 10 years. Now, that seems very uh, ambitious. Um, but yeah, so 50,000 new bills, 50,000 refurbs um, a year, every year for the next decade, um, was said in her speech, I think. She also mentioned um, running a referendum on United Ireland. Um, probably, obviously, a lot of support for that at the moment. Um, and talks about, uh, you know, the potential of a left Green-led government and all that, and I, I know um, Claire, you probably have some thoughts on uh, Ivana's speech, but I, I'll just say one more thing that Duncan Smith was also quoted in this article, um, and he goes on because we talked about last week about Labour saying Labour Party members themselves saying that they had a branding problem, whereas you have Duncan Smith here saying, you know, we need to have a social democratic party out there doing business, right? 
But at the same time, you're hearing Labour Party members call themselves socialist on the regular. So like maybe they are right about that branding problem because like, I, 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 yeah, I don't know. But anyway, I'll let you uh, come in there. Claire. Yeah, I mean, there's clearly an identity problem. But realistically, this comes back to trust. I mean, who wouldn't say who would say no to a million houses? Like, you know, we all love, we'd all love a million public houses to be brought on in the next 10 years. But I think Labour, she, she could have went down and said five million houses. And I think people would have reacted the same way to her. When she when she gave this speech, RTE covered it, right? And when she gave this speech and was finished with it, the camera panned to the audience and stopped. And right in the centre of the screen was John Burton clapping away. And I think like that had to be a deliberate. It just had to be a deliberate thing from RTE to just be like, are you having a laugh? People don't throw it like, I mean, say RTE, you know, Labour are platformed consistently across RTE and have been for a long time because they still have very senior trade union and media membership, I think. You know, like, I I think that that's a reality and that's that that's one of the reasons why, you know, Labour have kind of survived as a party. They still have that large structure. They still have the membership. And obviously, like, there's, there's a whole piece of analysis to be done on that. There are people who, you know, still believe that they're generally committed to, like, a socialist cause and can't kind of acknowledge that, their whole world kind of when you join a party, some people get so sucked into it that their whole social circle is involved, you know, is, is tied up in it. Their commitment to the work is completely tied up in this structure. They don't feel like they can step away with, from it. And also when you're close to people, unless you're really thoroughly examining yourself and questioning yourself on a regular basis, it's it's very easy to see the kind of good that people are doing and you know, give this kind of you know, halo effect in that. You, you, you minimise the negative impacts they have and you massively exaggerate the positive impacts they have. But when you have Ivana Basic standing up there talking about, like, a huge amount of the digs were at Sinn Féin and the soft downs as well. And that, for me, is just, like, just talk about yourselves. Like, you're in no position to be throwing digs at people who have never been in government. You know, like, Alan Kelly, who just triggers me like nobody else, that man. I swear to God. Like, I tend to tr- try and stay away from the likes of Twitter and that. You know, I don't try not to engage in that stuff too much anymore. But I, when I see either the, the, the Labour Party had a sign up a sister campaign a couple of weeks ago that just sent me off. And then Alan Kelly coming out a week or two ago as well. Just, I can't, that man oversaw water charges. He oversaw a massive rise in homelessness. That when we, when we were on the streets, we saw families for the first time on the streets, kind of under, under Alan Kelly's, uh, and the, the arrogance of when he was the housing minister and how he responded to, to a lot of what was going on. I will never forget. And I don't think a lot of people will. So. And the fact that there has just never been an acknowledgement of that. And it's most basic, I think, for a lot of people. It's like, right, when I vote for somebody, I'm voting for them on the basis of how they will vote and how they will represent me in a certain scenario. We know what Labour did when they had that power. And they haven't said they would do any different. Whether you'd believe them or not is another thing. But they haven't even come out and said, do you know what, if we were in that position, we wouldn't do that again. We, we made a mistake. Actually, what you hear far too often is... A defense of that well it was really difficult and it would have been worse and it's like the fact that they're coming across and putting themselves as the left like the only left alternative is i think i don't think they realize how much they're going to anger people and i don't think they realize that the approach they have only actually create nobody's talking about the labor party a long time now but now what you have is is people actually going at them again and kind of saying like how dare you how dare you come out and and place yourself in this place when you betrayed us so badly and when um like you're attacking two parties who've never actually been in government. So we don't know what they do. We can, you know, we can guess what they, what they're going to do either of them, but like nobody knows. We know what the Labour Party did when they had that power. Yeah. And now the, the Green Party as well are getting called out for it too, because during the week we saw, um, Eamon Ryan, um, in Trinity, um, 
give a talk about whatever he was going to be talking about. But he was interrupted essentially by a number of Trinity student groups, including the Connolly Youth Movement, PBP, Extinction Rebellion, a couple of other ones, um, to call out obviously the eviction stuff, um, the ban being lifted, but also on climate as well. Um, and, you know, there was the quote of, you know, Eamon Ryan has blood on his hands and how uh, the pro- the provost had kind of interjected and said, you know, you know, you can't be saying stuff like that or, you know, and there was this kind of debate online. I know that uh, uh, the Ditch and Trinity News um, covered it, um, but it's that whole idea of like, res- oh, respectability politics. You can't be saying can't talk about blood you can't can't say that he has blood in his hands when that is the actual reality and like you know this idea of respectability politics and you know how we challenge the ministers that are putting you know us in the position of having this housing crisis like walking us into uh climate destruction and without you know we literally we're supposed to have the big one of the biggest reports of the year came out this week and would you even know it's not even in the business post this weekend, not a story. There's one tiny little editorial about it, not even a name put to it. No, you wouldn't even know. So, like, do you think that the the people who are interrupting uh, ministers as they do their public uh, PR campaigns of, like, how they can, uh, you know, and without being questioned, like, ministers should be questioned everywhere they go. They should be called out for what's been happening here. And we've we've said it before because we, we saw um, the CYM uh, interjecting when Bertie Ahern was getting his doctorate award there a couple of weeks ago as well. We mentioned that on the pod. But like this, this is, it needs to be called out. There's no way the minister should be making public appearances without people actually questioning them. And that particular event had pre-planned questions. So you couldn't have questions off the cuff. You had an edited uh, questioning. It's the same with a lot of other places as well. I've seen it uh, with in other places where the questions are pre-planned and you can't ask this idea of like, oh, respectable. So what is respectable politics? Respectable politics is apparently having families in Garda stations. If respectable politics is having uh, like literally, as you say, climate destruction across the globe because of the impact that we're having here in Ireland. It's just it's mad to think that people think, oh, well, respectability politics, you can't be interrupting the lovely minister, the lovely minister who's like, who's voted to lift the ban and all of that. But just in general on that, um, on the, on that IPCC report, um, which, you know, like it does talk about how the current policies that we have is already going to bring us up to like a difference of 2.1 degrees and 3.4 degrees, right? We're supposed to try and keep the warming under 1.5 degrees to have to live some sort of a semblance of a normal life. We're already seeing the impact of the, you know, the the rise in the temperatures at the moment. Um, and at the moment, we're so I I feel like that pe- people are so caught up in trying to just fight to live right now with the cost of living crisis, with the uh, evictions looming, that it, people are finding it difficult to even have that that longer term. Um, like the working class people but the people who are at the top who have the invested interest in this they're having a great old time and they're the ones who are like causing a lot of destruction but also the people who are involved in making the political decisions um to just carry on as normal as if we're not walking ourselves into destruction if i could just jump in on some of that yeah i mean like so i mean like full disclosure i i, I had a corporate job before um <laughs> had me now in, in that world for a while while i was learning the dark arts of the pr trade and I mean, absolutely, you've got the BPs and the Shells and the Exxons of this world who, you know, there was bad faith, there was mass deception. And I mean, as as, as climate activists will always say, these people have names and addresses, you know. Um, and But there is also just a lot of people who just live in their own world about this stuff. 
And Eamon Ryan represents them. Like Eamon Ryan has a small piece in the Business Post today. I won't go into detail as to what it's about. Um, doesn't mention the fact that there was a demonstration uh, at, at a talk that he gave during the week. But, you know, Eamon Ryan will constantly talk to multinationals about their ESG strategies. And, um, I mean, if people don't know what ESG is, it's environmental, social and governance. And it's basically the new way that companies try to show that they're ethical investors and that they're moving away from harmful practices, you know. But it's basically... Greenwashing. Yes, yeah, it's, it's essentially a new way for people to greenwash because, you know, if you're, if you're a, a real estate company, you can talk about your SEAI standards and your 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 solar panels, but you can ignore the S, the social bit, because, you you know, which is obviously your tenants, which is where you're having the real impact. Um, but Eamon Ryan fully believes that, yeah, well, I mean, capitalism can, can, can still be green, where obviously if it was going to be green and better, it probably would have done it by now. Um, but the prevailing belief system like, underpins so much of, the, either the coverage about climate or like, as you say, the erasure, the, the lack of coverage is because they still genuinely think that like C-suite executives and, and and all these people are still going to be able to steer us away from that big iceberg that, you know, you've just talked about there. Yeah. And like, that's where the money is, right? If you have a look at the business post today, one of the first giant ads that I come across, like I just mentioned that there's no proper story about the, the report coming out, but there is a two page double spread near the start of the paper, which costs more um, on from the National Dairy Council. Now, I'm not saying not look, we're not we're not put pitching people against each other or whatever. Right. But there is no way there is an it's an accident that there is a two page double spread uh, thing about the National Dairy Council with the title that says how Irish dairy farmers are driving sustainability. So, you know, the Irish, the National Dairy Council know that they needed to respond this week because of the report that came out. And they have responded with this greenwashing piece of, you know, pictures of uh, young farmers with cows nuzzling their ears, you know, this lovely idea and painting this idyllic uh, picture of how our lovely cows in Ireland love wandering the fields um, and other countries are bad because they're so processed and, it, you know, they have to have them inside. And But our our lovely sustainable farming is lovely and green and idyllic and all of that. Um, and, you know, they, they talk about how our temperate climate is, is so suited to all of the sustainable farming. Um, but like they're not talking about how the report this week will actually not make us the temperate climate that we would have been before. Um, and how that will obviously and that they, obviously the we're, it's getting hotter because of their commitment to, you know, felling trees, cutting trees, clearing the land for intensive farming. But it's really interesting. It's a complete propaganda piece, uh, completely green, greenwash. And I actually don't know how like stuff like this is allowed to be published, to be honest with you. Um, like yeah. it, it re- really shouldn't like, um, you know, we're talking about um, so what they're talking about here, like they do reference, oh, like we're aware of the impact, the emissions, 37% of emissions are linked to agriculture. Um, but they talk about then offsetting carbon, which again is an, is a scam. Um, but they talk about oh, all these other things, you know, low emission slurry spreading, low emission fertilizer, low emission this and that and other. But like, what does that mean? Like, what does that really mean? It's still intense, really high emission uh, industry. Um, and it's it and it's interesting because one of the farmers actually said Ireland exports most of the dairy that we produce. So they're acknowledging the fact that we're not provi- we're not just providing for here. We're we're providing emiss- emissions in Ireland that are going across the world um, on this. So yeah, it's just very interesting. They're trying to pitch that our lovely green idyllic cows are more environmentally friendly than other cows around the world, but we just happen to have all of the cows. You know what I mean? 
Oh, um, I found I was reading two pieces on it. Uh, one of them was during the week from it was actually it was in the Irish Times and it was from Kevin O'Sullivan. And, you know, he talks about how there's a big implementation gap and a lack, lack of political will. He goes into real detail about that, about, you know, how some people will say Ireland has the most ambitious targets. But it's it's back to that piece about like, what does it mean what they're saying if it's not what they're doing, you know, and how it's been watered down the whole time. It's not been implemented, the greenwash and all that kind of thing. There's a piece this morning in The Independent that I actually thought because in its simplicity was really good. It was from Caroline O'Doherty. You know, she starts off by talking about how there's a lot of really decent people in the world, you know, but sometimes it's like people just are so caught up in their own bubbles and uh, people need to be aware of what's happening. And now I don't know how more aware we can actually make people, but the headline of it is we won't act on climate change until our own comfortable lives are threatened and that day is coming. And I think that's it. Like, that's really what it boils down to. And she goes on to talk about how, you know, little time was, you know, it was mentioned very briefly in the doll and how Varadkar actually used that moment to talk about how we won't increase our ambition, you know, around any of this stuff and around our emissions. Um, and then she goes on to talk about how this IPCC report, actually like a huge part of it was really basically talking about the impact of people, like how it's actually impacting people right now around the world. And if that doesn't, like, those, those are the messages. And I think that had to be a real deliberate decision by the IPCC. Like, how do we communicate this to people? How do we make people realise? How do we make people care? And unfortunately, too often it has to impact people. And I think that the IPCC probably did the right thing there. But it's it's the role of journalism and the mainstream media to get that message to people. Because people aren't going looking for an IPCC report. They're not going to pick it up and they're not going to read it. And that's the reality. So if they've gone to the trouble of making this about real people all around the world and how climate destruction is affecting them now, I think if people heard those stories, they'd probably be really affected and it might drill a home a little bit more. Even if drilling a home is only because they're thinking, well, that might be me one day or that might be me in a couple of years or that might be my kids. And But we need a vehicle to get that to people. We need, like, this should have been at the top of every news panel. This should have been the front page of every every paper. Like, well, there is nothing bigger than the planet. Like, this is a, going to affect the whole world. And it's just like, there's such a, this isn't by accident, there's such a coordinated effort, efforts to prevent this from getting out there because the lobbying against it and the money against it getting out there is actually just too influential. And I think it's, it's, it's sometimes forgotten about as well. I mean, when the IPCC puts out a report, like that has to get unanimous approval from the, from every, from all of the various stakeholders. So in all likelihood, the report they're put, putting out is a sanitised sort of euphemized version of events that the scientists have told them as well. So, I mean, you can probably bet your bottom dollar that things are a lot worse than the IPCC are actually reporting. But, you know, they obviously have to, you know, go go through that process of, of getting the report approved and getting everybody's buy-in. Uh, but if you go to, if you probably go to the, to, to the route and listen to the scientists about things, they're probably, you know, sounding the alarm bells even louder than that, even as, as much as we're trying to sound the alarm bells here. Yeah, absolutely. And I think just to kind of reiterate as well, like, yes, there's like the individual stories there to connect with people. Um, but at the end of the day, they also said like the actual government policies that are in place right now are sending us degrees higher than what is actually going to be deemed safe. So that was a call out to the government. And we, ha- we have to acknowledge like, yes, there is an awareness there. But at the end of the day, the people who can actually enact the real change are the policymakers and they literally don't give a damn about this. Um. I- I think that that's a, like, it seems like there's maybe some understanding or acknowledgement there that, you know, these reports come out all the time and government can just choose to ignore them. It is, it comes back to grassroots organising and feet on the street and people contacting, like public pressure is the only thing and massive public pressure is the only thing that will ever influence a government in, to do something it doesn't want to do. We've really only ever seen that here in terms of, you know, the water movement of that scale. 
And even now we're still fighting for a referendum. So it's, you know, as much as we don't want to be negative, like, you know, grassroots organizing is obviously the way to, to move forward and community change is the only real change. Uh, I think it's it, the fact is, is that, that they can publish these reports all day long. Government won't do anything with them unless their actual constituents and people in the country massively put pressure on to make it happen. And then it comes back to Michelle's point. I mean, I think I'm paraphrasing Naomi Klein. I mean, how do you get people to care about the end of the world and they care about the end of the month? Uh, and I mean, obviously, the challenge as 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 socialists is to try and juxtapose those two things. Um, but it's very difficult. It is. It is. And why is it easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism? <laughs> They're very real things. Like it's it's a lack of imagination as well. And I think just a little shout out here to some of our left block members, like community wealth building and cooperatives and what the likes of Trademark Belfast are doing. Uh, there, that's that's this in action. This kind of community wealth building in action. And this is actually how you change things from a much more, you know, smaller community level rather than, I mean, simultaneously, we need to be fighting for system change. But actually, I, I, I really do think in activism circles as well, and they're just ordinary communities, people literally can't imagine things being done a different way. It seems too much. It seems too big. It seems, you know, people just point to these and like they, they, they look to the worst of what's happened around the world and call that communism or socialism and scare people rather than talking about like, do you know what socialism or communism is? It's a couple of co-ops in your community and self-organizing and, you know, community wealth building and sharing. And and that I think that mm-hmm. is actually the way we show people a way forward because they're like, Jesus, why aren't we all doing that? That makes so much sense. Yeah, it goes back to what Bern- Bernadette Evan was saying at, um, at the Left Block Festival as well around organise where you stand. Um, and I think that's something that we need to be thinking about as well. Like, cause it just feels like a moment that like reading the news this week, I was just like, God, you know, you'd be, you'd be, dis- you'd kind of you feel so frozen by a lot of the, the news. But like, like, I just guess for listeners who are listening now, like, I guess, think about like, what, what are you involved in right now? Like, what unions are you involved in? What can you do within your local branch in your union, your trade union, or, you know, in your, join your CATU branch and organize that way? Like, you know, there's, there's, there's so much like political education that can be pushed, current affairs analysis, all of this. But, at the moment, what we're seeing has been whipped up and we see it like we've ha- talked about before around like how the far right are trying to divide us on different things that are talking about property rights, as we mentioned before, or, you know, the issues around like trans rights at the moment and um, all of that. They are all distractions from what we actually need to be doing, which is, you know, obviously protecting all of the minorities in our communities, but organizing where we stand, organizing on those, um, you know, on class, on so- like social issues, like and that piece rather than you know trying to be divided and, and like that that's only going to obviously benefit what we've been talking about the far right and all of that but yeah I just felt like there was such a moment now that you know we really need to be reflecting individually about how we're going to be part of the collective how are we organizing how like how is we as individuals going to be that collective mo- mo- moment because we can all individually feel like that sense of hopelessness and we can't let that grasp us because with that that's the only people who benefit from that is obviously the the the, the landlord class that we've been talking about and that we talk about here and I guess if anyone's listening here today I would just be saying that you know think about what can you do how organize where you stand what can you do where you stand right now um and take that action today and just what you were talking about there with the Posey Parker stuff, I mean, she was ran from Auckland. I mean, she was supported by neo-Nazis over there. So this is, you know, this is a far right fascist, uh, transphobic, like this, it's pulling in so many different issues. And the fact that they were, she was so, you know, 
physically and vehemently opposed over there that she cancelled her Wellington. She had another speaking rally planned after Auckland and she cancelled it and she left the country. And that's what we need to be doing to these people, to the far right, to the transphobes, to the people trying to organise um, in our communities. We need to be meeting them in that way every single time because it works. You know, if they think that they're going to get any kind of, they're going to kind of gain any traction, then... Um, it's feet on the street that we need and it's local organising and it's that, I completely agree, it's that organised where you stand because actually it does work and sometimes we see it in small ways like that with Posey Parker uh, during the week and sometimes we see it in the, in the water movement. Yeah, absolutely and it always uh, reminds me of um, a quote that me and uh, Glenn were actually chatting about during the week but, you know, that whole idea of like, you know, you see Kira Kelly saying like the far left, this, that, and the other. And but that whole quote of like, you know, first they came for the communists and I did not speak out. First they came for the socialists, they did not speak out. They came for the trade unionists, they came for the Jews, they came for, and then there was no one left to speak out for me. But like that's the whole idea of like individually, we need to stand collectively against all of this division because in order for everyone to have you know, at home, education, services, all of that, we need to be organizing collectively. And like the divisions, whether it's, you know, whether it's about uh, trans people unfortunately are being dragged through the uh, horrific um, hate at the moment or uh, asylum seekers, refugees, you know, it's that whole idea. If we're not speaking out for everyone who is being, um, you know, put down in like, when it comes to the far right and all the neoliberal politics, who's going to be who's going to be left when they come for me? So that, it's that whole idea of like we need to stand together now um, and not let these uh, deliberate uh, fissures of division um, break us. So I just, yeah, I just think that's important to say, given the current context this week or in general. Um, but Glenn, you had a couple of other stories you wanted to chat about. Uh, yeah, I'll throw one in quickly. Just um, uh, and I suppose I did pick up the business post this morning. Uh, the Murdoch Times wasn't in super value, um, but it's just the other the other editorial. Um, and look at now, maybe you're better off waiting for for maybe uh, maybe Stevie or Connor to come back on and talk about the, the the kind of the signals we're hearing about about potential global recessions and that. Um, but I suppose if you have a quick look at the stories across, I suppose the the, the various people that give their perspectives and 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 the the chief economists at the Irish banks and that. Um, looking at the I suppose the the consequences of uh, Silicon Valley Bank and and obviously Reddit Suisse there they're, they're over in Switzerland. Um, just the summary is like. They don't know the scale of the problem yet. Um, one person calls it a plumbing problem that they don't exactly know where it starts and where it ends. Um, they're saying that it's not as bad as 15 years ago, but they can't say for sure. Um, and I mean, look, it all seems to me like, you know, recessionary signs in the US should, def- should definitely worry us. Uh, but the editorial and the business posts kind of takes a very stern approach where it's like, well, look, if this was to happen again, it would be an absolute thunder and disgrace. Um, but <laughs> the, the, the long and short of it is, they don't know the scale of it. They don't know how bad it is or how not bad it is. They don't know what the parallels are between now and 15 years ago. Um, and you can be done well, sure not, when 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 the proverbial hits the fan. All these same people who don't really know what's going on, but are pretending to be the experts, we've got to tell us to take our medicine again. Uh, and it's just, it does, it does kind of feel very 2008, you are right. Um, so that's, that's just like I'm not, I, I would I wouldn't be comfortable delving into too much more detail about. I suppose the 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 anatomy of the banking sector, but it, the 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 almonds don't look good. It's also I just feel when you listen to them talk, it's like they can't talk about it because they'd have to acknowledge that this is capitalism. Like capitalism is causing this. You know, it, there's a really they talk about you know highs and lows and highs and lows and it being natural. It's like it's natural within the capitalist system. That's what this is. It's exploitation, and like Stevie put up a great. Uh, 
cart- like a comic book cartoon, you know, like a newspaper cartoon a couple of weeks ago. And it was basically like that, you know, looking at how the banks uh, were about to crash and how we're all going to have to pay for it. But, you know, one of those things that was in its simplicity was just so perfect. I mean, you break it down like that. It's just like these people went out and gambled. You know, they went out and gambled. And we are all still paying for it at its most basic. And it's like, are we going? Is that what's going to happen again? Are the decisions of a couple of you know people in really high paid jobs that will never see the the consequences of this? They might as well be at a racetrack, and we're all going to have to pay their debts. Like that's that's what we're talking about here. And they're not paid well enough. Sure, we're being told that we have to lift the cap on on bankers' pay as well. You know, and they've already after getting their bonuses back. So. <laughs> Here we go again. Here we go again. Um, is there any other stories that you'd like to touch on? Um, I could go for for one more lap if that's okay. Um, you know, it's just obviously from from one uh, right wing reaction we call Miss Masquerading as a centrist to another. Uh, it's just the back of the business post that's Lucinda uh, Creighton. So she's just kind of going and 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 looking at the the two alternating visits. So I think um, at the same time as. Uh, President Xi Jinping went to visit uh, Putin, Moscow. Uh, is it Kishida? Is the the president of uh, Japan, Prime Minister of Japan, went to visit uh, Zelensky? So she's basically just sort of like looking at this, um, you know, how basically, uh, you know, China's regional neighbours are becoming concerned that, you know, if if Russia wins the war in Ukraine, that China will ultimately get the, the green light to to go ahead and go on its own kind of imperial mission around Asia. Um, so, I mean, like, to be honest with you, sometimes you get a little bit more honesty from somebody who I would consider being considerably on the right than you do from a lot of liberal centrist people. Uh, I mean, she's basically sort of alluding to you know, Russia and China kind of, um, you know, trying to present themselves and, you know, an alternative to the one world unipolar system, which is kind of US led, uh, to you know, and that that's ultimately a multipolar world where there are, you know, several global superpowers um, but obviously this is like, you know, to her, this is all in bad faith and she doesn't have any kind of regard for 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 Xi or Putin at all, who in her mind are both just authoritarians, which is, you know, kind of funny because she did very little during her time as a parliamentarian than parrot reactionary kind of right wing positions here. Um, but like it's I mean, there's, there's very little mention there of the fact that like, I mean, we want to say China has been basically encircled by, you know, US, you know, military bases. There's an arch- archipelago of support for the US there, like uh, under Obama, the Asia, the, the pivot to Asia strategy, I think it's called, you know, basically deployed the vast majority of America's military resources to Asia. You've got a new military alliance between um, Australia, the US and the UK, AUKUS. Um, so, I mean, there's no kind of mention whatsoever there of, I mean, the fact that America is really, you know, stoking a lot of tensions in Asia. And it's kind of like it's the playbook, you know, right across all, all forms of international relations is that you know, America and its allies can create this kind of hotbed of reaction. And then the only thing that the media shows you is the reaction itself. Um, and then, of course, if you try and talk about some of the underlying consequences, you're a, you're an apologist, you're a this, that and the other. Um, but, you know, I think it's, you know, there's, there's been a hell of a lot this week across kind of the geopolitical landscape. It's, I mean, we've got Iran and Saudi who, you know, are, are, are all of a sudden getting on again. And, you know, China's brokered a peace deal there. You've got Erdogan and, and Assad meeting in Moscow, you know, looking at, at, at trying to repair relations there. Um, and we kind of can sometimes get very caught up in this idea of the international community in the West. But in actual fact, it's actually the West that's, you know, being increasingly isolated. And all of these geopolitical sh- shifts are are extremely significant. And I suppose, like, look, everybody's going to have their own, you know, conclusions on on the conflict and on geopolitics as a whole. But 
like it's a hell of a lot more multi-layered and, and, and complex than you're getting the perception of in the business post anyway. That's all I would say. Um, I mean, even looking at like one one quote there, she's saying that that G wasn't deterred by the International Criminal Court issuing an arrest for Putin. Um, but I mean, in reality, I think a lot of people, particularly outside the 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 the, West, the collective West, would understand that the ICC is pretty much just an instrument of Western policy anyway, and that. Uh, you know, there's obviously now a big rush from America to try and stop all of the, the the strengthening ties between, say, Africa and China, for example, and they're they're playing catch up there. But a lot of the global South, like now, they, they they're not necessarily siding with Russia and China, but they're certainly saying, "Well, look at where we're going to keep our options open. We're going to play both sides, and we're not going to just be subservient to 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 sort of the West anymore." Um, so yeah, like I think it's and, and I, I know it's not necessarily the most socialist thing to sort of talk about a geopolitical chessboard, but that's how the global superpowers look at these things. And it's, you know, it's not always quite as simple as um, you know, the the evil authoritarians in the in the in the East and the harbingers of democracy and freedom and 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 everything else in the West, you know. I find as well that lack of nuance and that lack of honesty in how we see reporting sometimes makes me really freeze. Like really because it's like I don't know what I can trust. And then you have to spend so long trying to get to kind of real sources of information. Um, and it's hard to keep on top of, you know, like broad geopolitical changes when you're trying to put that level of kind of analysis into like really small things, because that lack of trust, I find it can be really kind of freezing. Like you look at the other day, you had um, Israel launching missile attacks on Aleppo airport and, you know, how that was even framed in the media. I mean, like it was you know, they they framed it as in that was Israel trying to stop, you know, arms being brought into in and out of Syria. But like that was an aid route. And there's very like I'm not I'm saying very few people talk about like that was a humanitarian aid route in a country that has people starving and that has, you know, like it's the the very obvious. I mean, if you look, you, I know you talked about it, the the arrest warrant for Putin, um, Michelle, you and Stevie talked about it. But like the reality is, is that as far as I'm concerned, they're all warmongers and they're just treated very differently. And that's why you have this kind of shift, I think, as well on the left of of people who like there's definitely a split along the left in it. But I think what it is is it's actually a split about people who just don't want to be sucked into this divisive good versus bad narrative when the idea that NATO are some positive force coming in here I mean that feeds into another big kind of story this week as well and, and that's Irish neutrality which as we all know is already a farce but Radcliffe was in the paper yesterday talking about how we're going to have to have a national conversation and how how our neutrality is evolving neutrality doesn't evolve you're either neutral or not that's just the end of it but <clears throat> A lot of people coming out and saying, "Well, we need a referendum on it." Like they, they're making these decisions all the time. NATO came out during the week talking about, you know, praising Ireland for their contribution, and like they're taking our neutrality away brick by brick. And I think that if they, like we are gonna have to start looking at some kind of whether it's a mobilization or a campaign around forcing a referendum, I don't know, but like this, it needs to be reestablished. Like we need to, we need to tighten our neutrality rather than anything else because our position in the world as peacekeepers or potential, you know, peace negotiators are being seriously eroded. I mean, how could, like, if, like how could Putin accept Ireland coming in as some kind of Irish peace negotiator at this stage? Like we, we, that, that, that ship has actually sailed mm. at this stage. They've taken our ability to be that, that um, mechanism for peace away so they've already eroded our neutrality and I'm, sorry by they I mean the government <clears throat> yeah. so uh, it's and I think uh, that, that that potential 
that potential negotiators is the, like important there what you're, you're saying Claire because we've had the potential to be peace nego- negotiators in the ongoing war but that's not where our government has positioned um Ireland in in that like where there, there hasn't even been any sort of an offer to do that um instead we have Leo Radker coming out defending the fact that the EU are giving two billion to the Ukraine for artillery shells this is a neutral like in quotation marks country where our leader is say is defending essentially like whatever your opinion is on the war what if you replace the, the the name of the country you shouldn't be defending two billion worth of arms that the eu are funding regardless like that's not what our role is in any regard but um yeah as you say like i i, I didn't cover it last week but um on paddy's day you had the U.S. European Command, so coming out saying, today on Ireland's National Day, we value Ireland's long-standing commitment to the NATO Partnership Programme. So, you know, for to support uh, security in Europe and that whole idea of, like, stronger together. So, like, all of these institutions recognise that we are partnering in all of these you know, NATO affiliated partnerships, whatever way you want to call them, put the word peace in there somewhere and sudden, suddenly you've whitewashed the fact that it's still engaging in, uh, you know, it's not neutral. Like, um, but, you know, the talk of the referendum, like we have, like Fianna Fáil promised a referendum in 1997 and in successive programs for government, um, there has been promises that this referendum on neutrality is going to happen and still hasn't happened. Um, you know, obviously we've had huge mobilizations in the past around anti-war stuff, but at the moment, the like I, I know there are groups in, in Ireland, but there seem to be kind of maybe disjointed or maybe we need to kind of think about how we move forward with that. I know there's the coalition, um, but again, it seems to be one of those things where it's an unpopular thing to be talking about because of the particular um, war that's happening at the moment around Ukraine and Russia, um, people are afraid to say, well, maybe, you know, maybe we should have a that conversation in neutrality. But yes, polling wise, and we've seen this since the start, we know that the Irish people do support neutrality. And that that is the like, you know, and we should be being active in that neutrality by suggesting how can we support p- peace? How do we support the ending of this war? And that should be our role, not kind of saying, oh, well, I'm defending the fact that we're spending two billion on war materials. It's the difference between active and passive neutrality as well, because I've had conversations with people and they're like, well, what are we not supposed to support people who are being attacked, you know, and it's this kind of frame. And and it's like, this has to end somehow. So unless it's going to end with the absolute obliteration of one or maybe two countries, it has to end in negotiations. Like it has to end in peace. Like it's like, that's the only option here. And it's not suggesting that that should be conceding or what that should be. But the idea that there shouldn't be peace talks at least started. I mean, like, and who's going to do that? Like if the world is taking sides in very clear ways, I don't, you know, like we would have been that, we would have been that country. And I just don't see us being that now. And that's, that's a frightening place to be because it's like, how does this end basically how does it end and how do we ever get to that place if it if it turns out that you know there is nobody who can actually fill that that position but it's like that in the old expression i don't know where it came from like a cold peace is better than a hot war you know um so this morning like you've got the indo rte the journal all running with a story about you know um zelensky saying that belarus is held hostage by moscow that you know uh, belarus are going to host weapons now um, which is, you know, Putin is saying that's an escalation from, you know, UK looking to send depleted uranium. Um, so some of the, I mean, you talk about the double standards, Claire. I mean, like it's a big deal that Belarus is 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 held hostage. 
but it's apparently not a big deal that like depleted uranium, which, you know, causes cancer for generations of people, causes, you know, malformed births. Um, you know, like that's not a big deal. Um, so, I mean, like, I'm just wondering, like some people who are advocating arm Ukraine, like, is it like they maybe they don't care about Ukrainians? I certainly don't think that the British government care about Ukrainians. Or is it just kind of a scorched air policy where it's like, we know we're not going to win this war. So if the West doesn't get to, you know, have Ukraine in NATO or in the EU, then nobody gets to have it. And we're just going to, you know, ultimately <laughs> deplete, deplete uranium. It's a it's a frightening thing. So like, yeah, I mean, as you say, like, where where, where is the actual off ramp here? And, you know, I think like obviously the West hasn't responded well to China's peace plan because it's it's peace talks with no preconditions. And a lot of people on the left here have taken a position where it's like no no peace talks until Russia gets out. And, you know, it's it's that's I mean, unfortunately, it doesn't seem like that's going to be able to that's going to be able to occur. So sometimes you have to press the pause button. Yeah, usually we like to end on, you know, kind of good news story. Kind of similar to, you know, when you, Michelle, were talking about, you know, Bernadette's quote on organise where you stand. Like we started, you know, we started this call talking about the housing crisis and move a little bit closer to home again. There's the housing crisis, there's the cost of living uh, crisis. And we have two mobilisations coming up next week that have the potential to be really powerful. One of them is the Katu, uh a demo at the Spire on the 31st. And the on the 1st of April, we have the Cost of Living Coalition that are going to have a march and a rally. Um, and you'll find information about both of those. There are two opportunities to get involved in organisations. I mean, CATU, first of all, if you're not a member, join. They're doing incredible work. They're doing incredible political education, grassroots mobilising, really growing around the country. And I think that when it comes to housing, I really think CATU is the vehicle to get behind for housing. But, you know, we have a couple of kind of... um. We have a couple of coalitions that organise around housing and they're all, they all have different memberships and different types of agendas. But I think CAT 2 are the real vehicle for change, to be honest. Going but forward. also cross-country, like because a lot of the mobilisations happen in Dublin. That's just not accessible yeah. for people to come up to Dublin all the time to protest, because I, as I can understand. Um, but I think the fact that it is literally in the communities um, yeah. and is important and it's more accessible for people to organise where they stand. Yeah, no, big time. I mean, there's you and like there's so much organising. I was on a call with Lafayette Housing um over in the West, kind of uh, Clare and Galway, and there's some amazing work being done over there. And we we really do have to, as activists, remember that you know Dublin isn't the centre of the universe. Um, and then also we have the Cost of Living Coalition. Now that's majorly going to be fo- uh, focusing on housing on the eviction ban, and it's the day that the ban ends. So that's kind of why it's it's the reason for the date being or the date that it was called. But it's also everything else. It's like we didn't even touch on it because there was so much. But the profits announced by ESB during the week are stomach turning when you have people choosing between you know, feeding their family and, uh, and and putting the heating on, basically. So, like, that one's going to cover a big one. But basically, it's just, it's an opportunity to get involved. If you're looking to get involved, look at the Cost of Living Coalition Socials, look at Katu, look at Join and either of them, be on the street, bring the family along. You know, this is one of the few ways we have to show the kind of breadth of anger at the government and how much we disagree with their policies. So, yeah, might not be a happy story, but it definitely is a call to action. So, as Michelle said, organise where you stand, get involved and... Yeah, we'll see you next week. And that's us from thanks so much to Claire and Glenn um, for, for joining us for this week's discussion and absolutely reiterate what Claire is saying. Um, but do share out this on socials, get the message out, um, you know, take that next step other than just listen to the pod today and think about what that next call to action is going to be that you're going to ta- take up. Um, and we'll see you next week.